Welcome to Macintosh and Mod. Haven't seen what? The podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And today we watched Crooklyn. Spike Lee's vibrant, semi-autobiographical portrait of a school teacher, her stubborn jazz musician husband, and their five kids living in Brooklyn in 1973. Good movie. Good movie. It was pretty, it was, it was interesting. I was surprised. Because when directors make autobiographies, and I know this one is like not completely true. He's using stuff to build a story. Sure. But oftentimes they get all mixed up on like, uh, we're, you're telling us a whole bunch of inside stuff none of us care about. Yeah. I think he made a really solid movie. Mm-hmm. I was entertained. The story ran through. It's not the most groundbreaking thing he's ever done, but like it was just a solid story about growing up in Bed-Stuy. Mm-hmm. That wins every day in my book. I I liked that, uh, and I, and I enjoyed the movie. Like I I did I did enjoy the movie. I don't think he told this very well though. How so? Because he spends too much time on the daughter and not enough on the rest of the kids. It's parents and the daughter, and then she's just got this chorus of brothers. Which if the daughter was going through some like big crisis which she kind of does when she gets sent away (laughs) but even so it it just it didn't it it didn't work for me i wanted to spend more time with the brothers and kind of be like what's going on with each one of these kids because they kind other than you know the one who's obsessed with basketball and his knicks tickets they're 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 just a hodgepodge of other kids yeah well there's a reason why she's the focus I, I mean, I, I assume she's kind of standing in for him to a degree. No, no, no. We'll, we'll get to that point. But I don't think this showed me like what growing up in Bed-Stuy was. I think this showed me this is what this neighborhood was a little bit. But this is about this particular family. And I feel like if you really wanted to show me like what Bed-Stuy in the 70s was, I needed to see what each one of those kids experiences was especially and they all needed to be slightly more drawn out in age so you could be like this is what the super young ones are experiencing this is what the teenagers experiencing all at the same time with this dynamic in the family so i don't i i didn't i didn't love it i didn't hate it by any means but i i don't if the goal is to tell to show us what life was like in bed in the 70s i don't think he did a very good job there's a couple of factors there Okay. One that I have to reveal when we get to our writing. Okay. Another big one, though, is that this is before gentrification. That's fine. And it's really interesting to watch. I think there's a really interesting factor to how he filmed things with that. Mm-hmm. I do think one thing he could have done, too, besides just dealing with the brothers, is actually showing us life for some of the other kids. Well. Some of I- the neighborhood kids who do not have it as well as the family. Yeah. I I liked the other neighborhood characters and their interactions were fun, but there wasn't enough of them, which is why, like, I feel like if you had spread out the ages of the kids a little bit and then given them each like their own little friend in the neighborhood. So then we could go with them to what that person is experiencing in this neighborhood in this time. Yeah, it, it, it would it would have opened up that world a little bit more. I Yeah, I don't know. I think for me, it really was just like it, it being reflective of like the time and the period is probably not so much the point as just 
this is a neat little story about a really interesting dysfunctional family. Yeah. And I what I do appreciate is they don't hide the dysfunction. No, I, I do appreciate that. I was just like, like oh, thank God. <laughs> We're not going to pretend. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, that, that's fair criticism. All right, let's get into it because the writing is a big part of what I think your issues are here. Yes. The budget for this movie was $14 million. Mm-hmm. It made $13,650,000. This is a very niche movie. Yeah. I'm not surprised. And and with the story being what it is, you, I mean, like, how do you make a trailer for this to make people want to see it? Like, really, how? You don't. But let, let's talk about her ending because Spike is one of the writers. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. The story and the main screenplay credit goes to Joy Lee. Oh, okay. And Sinkay Lee, one of his other brothers. Hmm. So, you know, we, we've talked about Joy as an actor. She wrote a couple of episodes of the TV series She's Gotta Have It. Okay. Um, she also worked on editing for that. And Sinkay has directed a handful of other projects. Um, mm-hmm. Not sure. It's all very small stuff. This is a family film, and yeah. it was Joy's story to begin with, okay. not Spike's. Okay, that makes sense. Like, you know, okay. Which is why the focus is Troy, the girl, and not the brothers. Well, yeah, that makes sense. Which is interesting then, because then, I mean, again, the older brother Clinton, glasses, big glasses, giant Knicks fan. Yeah. We all know who that's supposed to be. It's Spike. We know. It was something I I said, and one of the other was like, oh, there's Spike in his New York teams. (laughs) That's who that guy is. Of course. Of right. course which, it is. Which it, it's not a criticism at all. It's just the way he is. It's funny. So here's a, here's one of the fun things. Seeing Kay and Joy wrote this as a Nickelodeon pilot. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> okay. Well, the kernel of the story, right? Sure. We don't necessarily have to go through this whole saga, but they wrote the kernel of the story as a Nick pilot. No, I can totally see that happening. I mean, come on. Well, and in 1994, Nick was still doing some pretty some more bold programming. Oh, no, I get that. But I just like, oh, yeah. Nickelodeon, large uh, family of color. Yeah, let's do that. Let's put that on TV. Let's compete with the Cosby show on a different network. That's what it is. Well, and like, and then watching this movie with that back knowledge, I was like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, no, that that does. And, you know, the the family dynamic and having that stuff work. Now, I don't know that you could go as far with the stuff that Carolyn does. <laughs> The mom, but like, no, but there's a whole level of like, this could have been like the original Malcolm in the middle. Mm, no. Eh. Um, so they screened a test pilot. They did a whole thing with Nick and they screened it for kids, inner city kids, mm-hmm. because that was the target audience. Sure. And the kids didn't like it. Sure. They didn't get it. They weren't getting on board. So they brought it over to Spike and were like, well, would you want to make a movie about family? And Spike's like, sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, biggest thing was Spike was super happy to take it on because he had spent so many years preparing for Malcolm X. Mm-hmm. And then it got released and there was so much controversy around the movie mm-hmm. that he's like, I want to do something fun and something easy. That explains so much how he cast himself in that movie. And he's like, you know what? You know what makes life easy? Me just talking about my family. Yeah. I get to work with my family and the stakes are super low. Mm-hmm. They can be mad at me and I don't care. Yeah. I, 
I think we may just suffer from some mixed and muddled rewriting Mm -hmm. and maybe the lack of somebody outside looking at the story. Yeah. With not piecing those points together. But I do think it's interesting that you latched onto it's like, why are we telling the story through her? Well, (laughs) no, no. I totally understand using her as your through line because being the only girl in a in a with amongst five kids and she's clearly like the middle child yeah which automatically fucks you up i know this i'm a middle child (laughs) um that puts her in a very specific role in the family and then also being the only girl yeah that's totally makes sense that she would have a very unique perspective on this family but you don't give us any other view on the rest of the kids so it doesn't matter yeah that's where I go, like, a TV series probably would have been nice. Yeah, but then, like, thinking about the Cosby angle here, Cosby family, five kids, one boy, four girls. But that show is, you know, about let's show a great, you know, look at, you know, a modern family succeeding. And that's not, this This is not that. No. Mm, no. It's a family flailing. Which quite is frankly. also interesting. And again, even with those faults, even more than Mo Better Blues, which like I was like, look, the thing that held me through was the characters. In this movie, it's what makes the movie so watchable. Yeah. Because goddamn, all of them are written really well. Yes. Troy's amazing. <laughs> yes. Such a spitfire. Such an amazing little character. The parents are fucking outstanding. Yes. Because you see, you see a movie through a kid's eyes, and sometimes they just throw the parents to the wood chipper. And Spike's like, no, they're important here, too. Well, I, what I like is that they're, they're clearly flawed. Of course. Which, you know, all people are. Yes. And I don't feel like there's an effort to excuse their bad behavior or to make it or to villainize them. It, it's not it's it's not, you know, I've got to make my parents look amazing or like evil people, which is usually what happens when someone's take, doing a, a, a story about their family or their yeah. their parents. Um, it's just kind of like this is just kind of how it was. Yeah. In this case, it's just like, man, <laughs> it, I've, I've had so many times as a parent where I've been in one of those situations acting like one of those two or having those moments and then being like, damn, <laughs> Well, this is why it's important to be able to, like, apologize to your children. Always, for fuck's sake. You know, because, you know, you're human and, like, this is my first time parenting you at this age. I've never parented someone your age before. So, like, (laughs) I'm going to fuck shit up. (laughs) Well, and it just helps your kids to know, like, everybody fucks up, including the grownups. Yeah. You need to know that. (laughs) Yes, adults have to apologize to children. That's just a fact. That's just a fact. <sighs> so I, you know, again, as flawed as the plot can be, mm-hmm. god damn, the the family's so fun, the bits are so fun, mm-hmm. all the little stories, and you're just left going like, okay, what, what, what was that? Like, what happened to this? Like, what actually happened with Queenie? Did the dog really die in the couch? You got to tell me. Yeah, <laughs> it just makes you want to go sit down and talk with Spike and be like, okay, you got to tell me the real stories. Mm. <laughs> Now, as we said, the film is semi-autobiographical. A lot of things are based on actual events, and it's Mm -hmm. all very reminiscent of life up to, you know, mom being a teacher, dad being a jazz musician. Mm -hmm. But Spike's mother didn't pass away until his sophomore year at Morehouse College while he Mm -hmm. was doing his undergrad. So it was much later that that they lost her to cancer. 
but it made for a really convenient story way to to pull the whole thing together i think and there's a very lovely message i think it was mother's day i don't even know how many years ago it was but he did a post i think it was on like instagram and he was posting about how he sat down to watch it and didn't even realize it was mother's day mm. and he's just like a lot of people told me this is their favorite of mine i love it i love making movies about all this stuff and then he ended it with the one two three song mm. which is just like oh yeah so uh, let's then talk about directing because directing it's just spike. Yeah, I found this really funny as we were talking about this movie. You said, "Oh, he has money now." Yeah, like just the opening shot. I was like, "He's got money now." That's a crane shot. You ain't getting that without money. <laughs> he found some creative ways around that with "Do the Right Thing," mm-hmm. but yeah, it was. I, he just got done with Malcolm X. Yeah, he had, he had a little bit of cash. He had some money that he could he could use for that stuff. It's interesting too, like. You feel like you're seeing some of the same stoops and things throughout the different movies, and each time it just looks slightly different than before. Mm-hmm. It's kind of it's it's funny because it's like it's almost like he's filming in the same spot just so you can see it change over time. Mm-hmm. Um, weirdly, this is not one of his like more bold and brash movies. Mm-hmm. With that, I think because he wanted to keep that sort of realism of like, hey, you're with a real family here. Mm-hmm. Other than the choice of completely junking up the image when she goes to the country. Mm-hmm. So when she goes to the country, Spike intentionally shot with a widescreen lens and then did not anamorphically adjust the image. Okay. Which when you do that, it squashes the image together. Yeah. And so because of that, he was like, I want it to be completely out of sorts when she's out there. Mm-hmm. And it works. It it is weird. It's weird, and then after a while, you get used to it, and then she comes home, and you're like, "Oh, thank God!" <laughs> mm-hmm. But it's, I mean, it's a it, it's a trick, but it's a trick that I think works for it because it's just like, yeah, that's how the kid would feel. Yeah, it does make sense. It's one of those few times where he did a whole lot less, which is not something I would normally think of for him, but it works really well mm-hmm. because he's just like, I know I don't need to do a whole lot to tell this story. Mm-hmm. I don't need to throw a whole bunch of images at you or anything like that. And especially with all the the symbology and all the different iconic types of shots he had to do for Malcolm. He's just like, nah, we just throw it up on camera and do it. We're good. Uh, One scene that they did film but ultimately had to delete was of the family's oven exploding. This actually happened to him. (laughs) Oh. They were in the house and the oven blew up. And finally, none of the children that they cast had any idea of how to play the street games throughout the film. Spike <laughs> had to teach all of them how to play those games. That's funny. <laughs> all right. Well, let's talk about our cast then. Ooh. We have three main members of the cast. Okay. We start with Alfred Woodard as Carolyn. Before this, she did a lot of smaller movies and TV appearances. She was Princess Lavinia in Puss in Boots in Fairytale Theater. I'm legally required to mention it. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, she was in Scrooged. Mm-hmm. Then St. Elsewhere, Grand Canyon, and Blue Chips. After this, How to Make an American Quilt, Primal Fear, Star Trek The First Contact, Star Trek First Contact, Mumford, Love and Basketball, K-Pax, The Core, Radio, Beauty Shop, Desperate Housewives, 12 Years a Slave, Annabelle, Captain America Civil War, Luke Cage, The Lion King from 2019, C, and The Gray Man. What do we think of Alfre Woodard in this movie? She's awesome. Or she's never bad. No, she's not. It's not possible. 
but she's so good. Mm-hmm. Look, there are borderline times where you're getting uncomfortable because it's progressing from mom is angry and berating children to mom might be crossing the line. Mm-hmm. But it's the opposite of the mommy dearest issue. Yeah. She knows exactly how far the character can go. Mm-hmm. And some of this is Spike, obviously. But Alfrey knows just how far she can push it before she's got to rein it back in. Yes. She balances it perfectly. <laughs> yeah, she's very good at it. And, you know, and like I said, it, it just it becomes a she knows exactly when to be screaming at the children, getting them down at four in the morning, being like, I told you to clean up the fucking dishes. You're cleaning up the fucking dishes. Yeah, I know that mood. And then coming back and looking at the kids and be like, I love you, goobers. Yep. I hate you, but I love you so much. <laughs> it's the it's the eternal mood of motherhood. <laughs> so is. And, you know, she's the one with her actual shit together. Mm-hmm. Which leads us then to Delroy Lindo as Woody. Mm-hmm. Before this, he was in More American Graffiti, The Hard Way, Malcolm X, and Bound by Honor. After this, Congo, Clockers, Get Shorty, Broken Arrow, Ransom, A Life Less Ordinary, The Cider House Rules, Romeo Must Die, Gone in 60 Seconds, Heist, The Core, The Exonerated, Sahara, Domino, Up, he played Beta, one of the dogs in Up, Mm. To Five Bloods and The Good Fight, and coming soon, he will be in The New Blade and Anansi Boys. He just started watching The Good Fight, and he's excellent in it. I fucking love Delroy Lindo so much. He's great. Every is time he- I see him in a movie, I'm so excited. He is so well matched with Alfred Woodard. Um, he like they're just like they're they play ping pong off each other very well. And he can just be like so like frustrating and then also like sweet with his kids. Like it it it's very good. He's he's so fun to watch. You know, I, there's a lot of this that has to do with just Spike knew his mother and father just so so well. Mm-hmm. That he knew how to put him on the page. Sure. And Bill, I, Billy, I think, was that kind of guy where it was, he was very quiet. He didn't want to fight because he probably had to deal with fighting a whole lot. Mm-hmm. I mean, Woody says it in the movie. It's like, I had to deal with screaming. I don't ever want to do that. Yeah. And yet, because he doesn't want to do that, he's not willing to confront some of the big issues. Yep. He and plays... I'll be damned if that is not a breath of fresh air in a family dysfunction movie. Yeah, he plays the avoidance game. Which you just, again, is so often true. Yeah. Especially for a lot of guys. Mm-hmm. But it's never portrayed. Mm-hmm. And it's ju- it's beautiful the way that he mixes it in. Mm-hmm. And Delroy Lindo's just, I mean, he's capable of doing all sorts of levels. But he's so good when he's quiet. Yeah. Because he's, he's so expressive. Mm-hmm. It's pitch perfect, the casting and chemistry between those two playing a much a much different than expected, but honestly true to life role within a family unit. Mm-hmm. Yes. Like people would be like, well, that's not how it usually works. It was like, actually, you'd be surprised how often that's the case. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like it's just the way it is. One fun note. Lindo said he was thoroughly intimidated because he had never worked with children before. Oh, okay. He had never worked with children. He had no children of his own. So he was really nervous about working with the kids. I mean, valid. Which weirdly works for his character. Um, There's a level of like being detached, I think, because there's a certain element for a portion of the film. His character's kind of checked out. 
which is which is which is the avoidant so him like just looking at the children as like these little gremlins who live in my house and drive my wife nuts Mm -hmm. makes that makes sense but also who i love very much i love them but also i i want to be away from them because my music i want to love them from afar (laughs) (sighs) moods such moods such parenting moods in this movie Mm -hmm. Uh, and finally zelda harris as troy this was her debut movie after this she was in the 1995 babysitters club movie Mm. she was in he got game she'll make an appearance again and she was in a handful of other movies what do we think of zelda harris in this movie she's adorable so good just the right amount of spunky Mm -hmm. and like frustrated but also like Fuck you to everybody. I love it. She's very fun. The real coup in this movie to me is Spike. Again, not not just the parent things. He wrote a kid who was real. Yeah. A kid who is actually growing up, dealing with growing up, mm-hmm. and dealing with it how actual kids do it, not some Disneyfied version of it. Yeah. She's just so good. Spike got the best out of her, and the, the three of them and Joy took a took such special care of making this character so real mm-hmm. which again i don't expect from most movies i'm ready for that not to happen and when it does i'm so happy okay her newer films are doing a much better job with this they are that is true like like we've had a couple recent films that have done like adolescent girl well eighth grade eighth grade um turning red uh just that very weird time uh that previously like we just didn't talk about you were either a little girl or you are an object to be fucked like there was no middle and so like we're we're getting better about like this weird time um yeah she's she's great so good mm-hmm. all right let's talk about some arpons random people of note first off we need to mention all the other kids um yeah. there are pawns one because they're not the sole focus and two because they didn't do a whole lot except mm-hmm. for one yep carlton williams who plays clinton he didn't really do anything else i assume he just had the spike vibe <laughs> yep perfect for this role there you go sharif yep. rashed playing wendell uh he did some single episodes here and there he's a little bitty kid so you know yeah samok washington playing joseph uh he had a bit role in chasing amy as a kid at a record store Okay. And finally, the one who did a whole lot was Christopher Knowings playing Nate. He played Chris on Sesame Street from 2007 to 2019. This this is another one where we're watching it. It's like, I know that face. I know that fucking face. Who is that? He's on fucking Sesame Street. <laughs> it's adorable. Maybe maybe very happy. Not just on Sesame Street, but on Sesame Street when our kids were the age to watch Sesame Ab- Street. Absolutely. Like the second it was just like, he's Chris on Sesame Street. And I was like, I, I know who that is. And so then I looked it up and I was like, oh my God, it is Chris. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Chris and Alan all the time. <laughs> I love it. Uh, we have David Patrick Kelly playing Tony Eyes and Jim. Uh, he's been in a lot of stuff. He had a remember- memorable role in The Warriors, but probably most famous for being in Twin Peaks. Oh, okay. He's a big character actor. Yeah. Jose Zuniga as Tommy as Tommy Lala. He is a perennial TV guest star, but you might remember him well as the agent who stops Tom Cruise in the parking lot in Mission Impossible 3. Mm, okay. 
Isaiah Washington playing Vic. He was in Grey's Anatomy and a noted asshat. Yep. Spike Lee playing Snuffy. I'm sorry, but the second we see him, all I could do was laugh. It's so funny. The whole bit. And then the fact that they sniff the glue and the next shot we see is them upside down. Mm-hmm. Dolly shot through regular streets. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, Spike. <laughs> Spike is willing to do Looney Tune shit when it works for his movie. Fire. Like the dream where she starts tracking shot up on a crane because mm-hmm. she's done it. Yeah. Oh, it's all so good. That's very funny. <sighs> and the fact that he named the character Snuffy. Yeah. Because come on. I could not. Norman Matlock playing Uncle Clem. He was one of the fellow cabbies in Taxi Driver when they're at the depot. Mm, And he played the police commissioner in Ghostbusters. Mm, Vondi Curtis Hall playing Uncle Brown. He was Captain Prince from Romeo and Juliet and was in Chicago Hope. Oh, yeah, Chicago Hope. Okay. Bokeem Woodbine playing Richard. He is a great heavy actor who played Shocker number two in Spider-Man Homecoming. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, this was his debut film. Really? As the bodega woman, RuPaul. Yeah. Woo! This is a fun RuPaul bit, because it's not RuPaul being RuPaul. No. It's pretty funny. Yeah. No, it's just one of those cameos that RuPaul did everywhere for a very long time. But also, Troy just standing there staring. Mm-hmm. And the guy at the counter like, get your money and get the hell out of here. Mm-hmm. And finally... Playing Aunt Maxine, Joy Lee. Mm. (laughs) With the funniest wig for Joy. Because we know how Joy's hair really looks. Yes. All right, finally, some trivia. Trivia. Now, the script does not specify a year for the movie, but several story elements show us it was in the spring and summer of 1973. Mm -hmm. See, Clinton goes to the final game of the Knicks finals instead of his dad's concert. Only years the Knicks won the championship in the 1970s were 1970 and 1973. Okay. However, Soul Train did not debut until 1971, meaning the only year that this movie could be set is 1973. That's cool. There we go. And finally, the brownstone where the Carmichaels live is at 7 Arlington Place in Bed-Stuy. In 2022, the home sold for nearly $4.5 million. Fuck gentrification. Pretty much. And that leads us to ratings. Ratings. For every film, we have a specific rating system. For this movie. Next ticket. Oh, that's fair. I don't have anything better. Soul Train Dancers? No. Next ticket. We could go Queenies. No. <laughs> uh, Danny, you go first. Give me your I'm rating. Gonna go, I'm going to go with three. Okay. Because unlike our last one, this did have a, a more interesting story. But it just needed to be told differently. Um, but I I think he used... Well, that's not necessarily true. I keep thinking, like, well, he uses... Char- like, I think his characters, as he used them, are really fun. And and again, very well thought out. I think this is a better story than our last one. So I'm going to give it a three. I'm going four. Oh. I really like this movie. Okay. It's charmed. It was, it was, it's one of those movies that's like, I'm not going five because it's not something mind-blowing yeah but every part of the story to me was just so well told the characters the story i didn't have the same problems with the structure of it 
I do think it's, you know, very specific to him, but I think it's one of those cases where a story being so specific was also so important and crucial to the way the story's told. Sure. And like there's a lot of care put into it because he is who he is. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I gotta I gotta go with my gut and go with a four. Okay. Four Nick's tickets. And so now we are transferring a few years ahead, Diana, mm-hmm. to Probably Spike's number one basketball movie. Okay. Because he's got to make a movie about basketball. It's Spike. Sure. And we are going to watch He Got Game. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I've never seen that one, but I want to. I had never heard anything about this movie. Not even the plot. Then I looked it up the other day and I was like, oh. Okay. I'm not going to give it away, but just like the idea and concept around this movie makes me really intrigued. Okay. And not to mention Denzel. Denzel. That's all I know about it. It's basketball and Denzel. That's all I got. So yeah, let's get ready for some basketball. All right, cool. Well, until next time. Have a good movie. Thanks for listening. Be sure to review and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For questions, comments, and recommendations, you can email us at macintoshandmod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook.